Intelligent, sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. If this is the best we've got coming out of uh, Mueller's investigation, it is time that he writes the report, closes it out, and let the American people focus on what is important to them. So hopefully this is the beginning of the end, but uh, it can come none too soon for most Americans. I, there's an old line when I covered the Reagan White House. It's appropriate to say here, those who know aren't talking, those who talk don't, don't know. know. No, 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 nobody outside of the special counsel's office knows what he's got. But clearly, Robert Mueller and his team know a lot more than we know. And we're going to have to wait to find out uh, whether it is substantive or not. And now, Stacey Washington. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to the program. Uh, during last hour, we talked a lot about, in the first segment, our promotion day today. Um, which is ongoing, we want you to go to afastore.net and get your Keep Christ in Christmas wristbands. You can get a pack of 10. You can get a nice discount if you buy two packs and spread them far and wide. Share them with friends and neighbors, coworkers, people at church, anyone who might be interested in wearing them as a conversation starter to give us the opportunity to share the gospel and to share the reason for the season. And I also talked a little bit about um, the new reporting out from the Washington Free Beacon about the responsibility that PG&E holds in refusing to have proper oversight and maintenance over their infrastructure, which is responsible for the campfire. Not my opinion. It's what they've written here. NBC Bay Area, hardly a conservative organization, reporting Jackson Van Der Breken. He's the author of the piece talking about how PG&E failed to maintain the tower, having an obligation to do so. And that they should have done detailed inspections after 2012 when five towers collapsed during a winter windstorm. They should have taken a serious look at the entire circuit. After those five towers collapsed in 2012, it appears they didn't do that, which is a big problem for PG&E and a huge problem for the people who were killed and those who were made homeless and those who were harmed in many different ways. And so, again, it's important that we do our jobs because when we don't do our jobs, people lose their lives. They lose their their property, their homes, their businesses, their livelihood, and someone has to be held accountable. Someone will be held accountable. Those responsible will ultimately be held accountable. But while we're still here on this earth and have breath, we should be very diligent in doing our own jobs, and we should hold those who don't do their jobs accountable. And that's what that article is about over at the NBC Bay Area website. Um, The title of it is Hook on PG&E Tower Ida's Cause of Deadly Campfire. So, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. PG&E is the one that emails and and calls and upset conversation should be going to. So um, this hour, we're going to be speaking with Mark Lauder. He's a former special assistant to the president and press secretary to Vice President Pence. And uh, he currently runs a strategy firm, and he's going to come on and talk about 2020 and news of the day. Apparently, the same kind of uh, lack of winning operation and readiness and efficiency on voter information that existed in the 2012 campaign for the Republicans and Mitt Romney, that same type of malaise is now infected the Democrats' apparatus and the DNC under Tom Perez. And so Mark's going to join onto the program and talk about that a little bit and kind of paint a picture of what that looks like because they have a lot of dissension in the ranks 
because there's real no real clear leader besides Tom Perez. Obviously, he's heading up the DNC, but party wide, there's no standard bearer or individual who is a presumptive nominee who can begin to coalesce uh, support from the many different factions and get them on board with sharing the information and data that they need to create their voter database. So he'll be joining us to talk about that. Right now, I want to turn to um, Bloomberg, another potential Democratic candidate for president in 2020. And he is someone who Midwestern Americans and mainstream Americans who aren't really um, concerned with climate agenda and all of that nonsense have found him to be really anti-Midwestern values, anti um, the kind of bedrock energy production methodologies. He's, he's against them all because he's really big into climate change. So Bloomberg, according to this NBC News affiliate where Dave Winters and Dan Price were having a discussion on air about Bloomberg coming to town in Iowa, they're saying, you know, he might have a tough time winning over some Iowans because of his previous stances and public statements on ethanol. It's number four. Michael Bloomberg might have a tough time winning over some Iowans. He has been a longtime critic of corn-based ethanol and the federal subsidies that help ethanol production. Back in 2007, he told MSNBC, quote, unless what you're trying to do is to help the people in Iowa, and I don't, that may very well be a good idea. But you can't do it as part of the environmental part of policy. Political director Dave Price joins us live from Ankeny now, where Bloomberg held an event today. Dave, uh, those past comments could be uh, quite the hill for him to overcome if he's going to run for president someday. Yeah, no doubt it could be a challenge for him, and he'll have some explaining to do about it. We're not used to presidential candidates coming here and ripping ethanol. And he didn't come here and really do that today. Most of his visit was set up to come to these classrooms like this to talk more about wind. But here is how he addressed some of that previous criticism about ethanol. I think that ethanol and biofuels are part of the mix. There's a place for it. I think eventually you'd like to get to a world where we don't burn anything. That's the ways that you really clean the air the most. The way to clean the air the most is to have more trees and green vegetation, not not burning anything. So only someone who lives in a world like Bloomberg does can... It, only someone like that can make these kind of idiotic statements. Oh, we need a world where you don't have to burn anything. You, that's how we get the cleanest air. But if we're not burning anything and we're going back to the dark ages, but like literally the dark ages because we can't burn anything. What about the other countries? What does Bloomberg plan to do about other countries that have their population dwarf stars? We're a minuscule blip on the population uh, you know, scale or, or ladder or whatever compared to these other countries where they're not only burning things, they're destroying huge forested areas. That is a contributing factor to warming. Not, not man-made climate change, cyclical warming, but of course the amount of vegetation that's on the earth impacts the temperature. It impacts the amount of CO2 that is absorbed and converted into oxygen for us to breathe. These kinds of simple, rudimentary, scientific you know, these are these are truths seem to have escaped this wealthy man. He's just running around making any kind of statement he wants to. And on, honestly, I hope he continues. I hope he just keeps on going because it's these kinds of statements that will lock him out of huge voter markets like Iowa. You, you need to win Iowa. 
he won't be able to do it because he's against something that they're they use and and produce. It's integral to their economy. So good. You know, keep talking, Bloomberg. We don't want you to be the president of the United States. Um, If he continues on like this, there's very little chance that that can actually happen. So now let's turn to yet another presidential contender, Kamala Harris, who her the problem with Kamala Harris is her likability. Everything's fine until you watch videos of her on uh, the Judiciary Committee, her questioning of almost every person that she's it doesn't matter if they're up for a cabinet position or if they're a Supreme Court nominee. It doesn't matter if they're going to be a government dog catcher, if they've ever sat before her and had to put up with her. It's hostile witness questioning. You hear her voice doing that and you think this woman would be the president of the United States. Every event, you'd have to hear her talk. You'd have to hear her talking in that voice. Not only is she smug, but everything to her is racism and sexism. There are no other reasons for any other thing to happen on this planet. If someone's doing something, they're doing it because they're a racist or they're doing it because they're a sexist. That's it. You know, they hate women or they hate blacks. That's it. It's ridiculous. So you're probably going to be surprised to hear that someone like that, who's so in tune with the Me Too movement and so quick to make sure that she's on the right side of everything having to do with women, that she actually has a longtime aide of hers resigning from her office after settling a sexual harassment lawsuit. So this longtime aide to Senator Kamala Harris resigned from her office on Wednesday after inquiries were made about a harassment and retaliation lawsuit he settled while working for Harris when she was California's attorney general. Harris's office claimed it was unaware Yeah, right. Of a lawsuit filed in December of 16 by Danielle Hartley against Larry Wallace. At the time, he was the director of California Justice Department's law enforcement division under Harris. Harris had just been elected to the U.S. Senate. She was preparing to transition to Washington. And during this time, um, you know, he was accused of sexually of sexual harassment. Now, Lily Adams is a spokeswoman, and she wrote in an email to the Sacramento Bee that Mr. Wallace offered his resignation to the senator, and she accepted it because he followed her on from the AG's office in California to her Senate offices in D.C. The lawsuit was actually settled in May of 2017. Notice I didn't say May of 2007 or, you know, some other derivative thereof. Make up any number you want. This is 2017, so a year and six months ago, roughly, he settled a lawsuit that accused him of retaliating and sexually harassing a woman. Retaliate, retaliating against. The lawsuit was settled for the whopping sum of $400,000. The department at that time was headed up by Xavier Becerra, who was appointed state attorney general after Harris went to the Senate. By this time, Wallace was working as a senior advisor in Harris's Sacramento Senate office. Then Hartley, so going backwards, Hartley joined Wallace's office in 2011 and became his executive assistant, and she accused him over a period of demeaning and harassing behavior related to her gender. According to the lawsuit, Wallace placed his printer on the floor underneath his desk and ordered Hartley to replace the paper or ink on a daily basis. When she asked to move the printer to another location so she would not have to crawl under his desk in dresses and skirts, he refused. 
He frequently asked her to put paper in the printer while he was sitting at his desk or in front of other male executives from the division. Now, here's a, here's a bit of advice from me to you. Don't do that. If your boss puts a printer under his desk and makes you crawl under it, tender your resignation. Get your cell phone out. Take some photographs. Get some audio of him doing that if you're in a single-party consent state. And then submit your resignation. Why would you go underneath a desk to replace printer ink in front of other people? Like, why? So obviously he, he was in the wrong because he settled the, the lawsuit. He didn't want this coming uh, out in, in to the public, but it's out in the public anyway. Hartley also complained in the lawsuit that Wallace took away her meaningful tasks and put her in charge of running personal errands instead, like booking flights for Wallace's children, washing his car, taking his car to get the oil changed. She would return from these assignments, the lawsuit states, co-workers would make hostile comments to her saying, are you walking the walk of shame? According to the lawsuit, Hartley eventually informed her supervisor, Shannon Peterson, Patterson, of the harassment and asked for help. Hartley observed Patterson enter Wallace's office, meet with him behind closed doors, and after that, office workers began to retaliate against her. In settling the lawsuit, the department denied Hartley's claims, and Becerra said he and two of his deputies took reasonable steps to prevent and correct workplace harassment, and they properly trained Hartley in how to respond to harassment. She unreasonably failed to utilize the procedures during the period of time and after the alleged harassment and discrimination was occurring, had plaintiff taken reasonable effort to utilize these procedures, her alleged harm, injury, or damages would have been avoided. Classic victim blaming. So the issue here, number one, is, you know, you have, there's no excuse, woman, man, whatever, If you're told to do something as demeaning as crawl around on your hands and knees on the floor at work, you say no and you quit. That's it. You don't hang around. Well, this is a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity to demean yourself and maybe get a settlement later or maybe not. Maybe have your name drugged through the mud. Maybe be treated like a piece of trash for weeks on on weeks, year over year by a monster. This man was a monster. And he worked in Kamala Harris's office and she knew it. You don't work with somebody like that and not know that's who they are. But she wants to be the president of the United States, y'all. Wow. All right, when we get back, we're going to have Mark Lauder and more. Stacy on the right. Go to AFRstore.net to get your Keep Christ in Christmas wristbands. Be right back. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Hey, Stephen McDowell has been a personal friend of mine for a couple of decades now. He is one of the best historians I know. He is president of the Providence Foundation, and no one documents early American history, especially the Christian aspect of early American history, better than my friend Stephen McDowell. He is going with us on our spiritual heritage tours, and he'll be talking all along the way and answering questions, and you're going to enjoy spending time with him if you're able to go with us in June or September. Again, we're going to Washington, D.C. and Mount Vernon, and we're also going on a separate trip to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. 
So if you'd like to go on either one of these or both of them, contact us at spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. When Congress reconvenes, we'll be hearing more about a new initiative called the Green New Deal. Proponents want to overhaul government spending in order to combat climate change. Some of the new Democrat members of Congress want the majority to establish a committee that will be tasked with increasing the size of government and decreasing carbon emissions. In a recent column, Timothy Meads quotes from an article that appeared in Politico. The Green New Deal resolution calls for a bevy of far-reaching liberal goals to decarbonize the economy within a decade by reshaping the electric power, agricultural, and transportation sector. The article goes on to acknowledge that the plan may be even too much for Democrats in the House and Senate. Nevertheless, the concept has become an important rallying cry for the need to address climate change. If all this sounds familiar, it should be. Back in 2009, President Obama's Reinvestment Act pushed billions of taxpayer dollars towards green companies tasked with a similar mandate. These companies often failed while their leaders pocketed the cash instead of creating jobs and lasting green energy. A similar plan has been tried in other countries. Tim Worstall, writing in the Washington Examiner, provides some perspective on what happened in Australia and the United Kingdom. When the global recession hit Australia, government leaders thought that they could prime the economic pump by spending money to insulate houses and other structures. A royal commission documented that financial failure. The British government decided to do the same thing. There are fears that as many as a million homes were ruined by this central planning. The Green New Deal would not be a deal at all. We have seen what happened in Australia, Britain, and the United States when a similar plan was implemented and failed miserably. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Go over to AFR.net, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, StacyOnTheRight.com. Also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We have all these fun places for you to interact. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. We have Mark Lauder. He is a former special assistant to the president and press secretary to the vice president. He served as special assistant to the president and press secretary to vice president Pence. He serves as a natural national spokesperson for President Donald J. Trump and vice president Mike Pence's political efforts. He can often be seen as a guest on Fox News Channel, MSNBC, CNN and the major television networks. He is also the founder of Lauder Communications LLC, which provides communications consulting services to corporations and organizations. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me back, Stacey. It's good to talk to you. I, I, you know what? Let's, let's dig into this thing. I kind of previewed it just a smidge a, a little bit ago. You've got the Democrats in a similar position to what um, Mitt Romney found himself in when he was the presumptive dominee, if you will, going into the 2012 elections where the Republicans' data apparatus was just not stood up properly. Now the Democrats find themselves in a similar position. What do you see them doing about it? Well, there's a lot of flailing around right now because not only are they not improving it, we've got to remember that the DNC is still pretty much bankrupt financially and obviously from a leadership standpoint. Uh, they still have loans outstanding from the 2016 campaign. 
uh, let alone what, whatever they might have done on 2020. They got out fundraised by the Republican National Committee, I think 40 to 1 at one point. And, and so the Republican National Committee is continuing to invest resources to build on that great data framework that we've already established. And Democrats are still languishing behind trying to catch up. And their state parties are really not having much uh, love for the plan that's been put forth so far. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about Tom Perez, and he's he's really unpopular. And I know, like, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was never my favorite, but apparently she had inroads and a lot of uh, connections and, and kind of a network around the country of people who supported her and were really responsive to her, her leadership. Tom Perez seems to lack that. Am I wrong about that? Or is it because it, it looks like he just doesn't have a really good network of supporters around the country? No, I mean, it would look like, you know, that they are still continuing to lack in strong leadership. And, and, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it play out. And it's really going to to rear its head here as we enter the 2020 cycle when you're going to have, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40 candidates who are trying to run for the Democratic nomination, how he manages that. Plus, we've got to remember, too, that the Democrat Party has basically been taken over by an angry socialist mob. And so as the, as the candidates veer further and further to the extreme left to try to win their party's nomination, it's going to make it that much more difficult for them to come back to the middle and try to win a general election race against President Donald Trump. So I, I don't want to get too happy about this because, you know, I'm not called Stacey on the right for nothing, Mark. I'm, I'm hoping for the reelection of Donald Trump in preparation for 2024, Nikki Haley. That's that's what I'm hoping for. Um, but don't we kind of always hear a little bit about their disorganization and the, the lack of cohesion, and then they just pull it together? Isn't Soros going to dump a whole bunch of money in and kind of rescue the day for these people? Well, and, that, and that's very likely. But the one thing you have to remember is that the Republican Party spent more than two years and and tens of millions of, not, of dollars building their data operation. It is not something that a big tech can necessarily solve. You need to build infrastructure. But even if you build that infrastructure, you still need time to collect and get all of that data. And, uh, and so this is something that the Republicans have been working on really since the 2012 election. And so not only do we have the information from the 2016 campaign, we have some information from 12, 16, and now even 18. And it all goes into this system, which helps which helps the Republican Party not only identify people who are likely to support our candidates, but the causes that they're interested in. It gives us a very strong backing. Even if you can build that system, you're going to have to get that data, and that takes a while. So what about the influence of Facebook? Yesterday we had a guy on named Dr. Epstein. Um, he's got this new documentary out called The Creepy Line in which he outlines all of the ways that Google uses 200 other companies to spy on you and build this extensive database about who you are and what you buy and what your political leanings are and what you eat for breakfast, everything. And they want to have those listening devices, the Alexas and all that stuff in every room of your home so that you're never not being surveilled. And then you have Facebook, who really they, they're being credited with swaying suburban women voters away from the Republicans during the midterm. And they're estimating that 20 percent of you know, the American electorate could be swayed in one direction or other by manipulating search results or by controlling what people can see on Facebook. How do we account for that? Because that, that all goes to the left. That all leans liberal. 
Well, and I think one thing is, and, and I'm one, I'm never going to sell short the American voter, regardless of their party affiliation. I think the I think the American people are a lot smarter than what a lot of folks in Washington, D.C., and New York City think they are, and especially on the conservative side, as it comes to the social media, as it comes to uh, just information available on the Internet. I think we are becoming more and more savvy users. And so I do believe that that we are going to be able to arm people with the information to be able to help identify how they might be underhandedly manipulated or directed to places by by Silicon Valley and by the, the, the liberal billionaires who want us to only see the information that they want us to see. Mm-hmm. But you can be assured, and I can tell you this for a fact, that, that the president, the vice president, our campaign, the RNC, we're going to be very... Uh, very upfront, very forward-looking, and uh, when it comes to making sure that people have access to the information to see the results, because this really is touching the administration. The president is based on results. He's focused on them, and we're going to make sure that people know them, whether the mainstream media or Silicon Valley wants you to see that information or not. Yeah, and we were staunchly, um, you know, getting the truth out there uh, through the entirety from before the president was inaugurated up until the midterms, and we will continue to do that here on the program. We would love to speak with uh, Vice President Pence and have him share when we get closer to these really pivotal moments here on the air with us about what is being done. And I, the RNC operation has, in my opinion, been 100% turned around from the last time we had a presidential campaign. 2016 was executed well. And I I agree with you, Mark. I'm concerned about what Silicon Valley does, but I am not at all out of respect and admiration for fellow Americans who know that you need to go to websites and and read content for yourself. You can't only rely on your newsfeed on Facebook and that there's there's a limit to how much we need to interact on social media. We really need to still be people and interact face to face, person to person, churches, organizations, civic groups, you know, at the grocery store, that's where we get the vote out. And that's where we we win these elections. And I think uh, that Americans know that now and that they're much more tuned in than they're maybe getting credit for. I think you're absolutely right. And having uh, spent a lot of the campaign trail, both in 2016 and 18 with the president and the vice president, I can tell you the vice president, whenever he's on the stump, he often tells people, look, Despite the ads and the people knocking on doors and all the things, the mailers that we flood people with during these campaign cycles, the most effective message and most effective messenger we have is people talking to their friends, their families, people at church, people at work, and telling them about the results and how, why it's important that they vote uh, to continue the results and not just turn themselves into uh, warriors for the resistance. Absolutely. And, and the, the good thing, Mark, is um, anytime there's an advantage for the Democrats. What I'm noticing is that they're they're very good at shooting themselves in the foot. They actually gave the Senate to us in many ways through their behavior towards Justice Kavanaugh. And there was so much more at stake there. Um, but the 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 best part of the the midterm that we were able to walk away with was the control of the Senate and and the ability to continue to have constitutional judges all over the country and at the Supreme Court level when that next becomes available again. And we have to thank the Democrats for overplaying their hand severely with Kavanaugh for part of that, that victory. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, if it, and if history is any guide, look, we did the same thing back in the mid-19, late 1990s when we retook control of, of Congress uh, during the term of, of President Clinton. Oh, we yeah. overplayed our hands in many respects. 
and the American voters reacted uh, negatively toward that. I think you'll see the same thing happen under Leader Pelo- uh, Speaker Pelosi and with the, uh, the socialists that are now going to be prominent in Congress. And uh, we just need to make sure that the American people see it, they recognize it, and that we show them the better way forward, because that's the key, not just talking about it, not just labeling it, but making sure, and we know that we have that in President Trump, that we're going to show them our plan to how we can make America great again. Mm, I love it. Well, you know what, Mark? It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. And I, we love the work you're doing. We're so excited about uh, the prospects. I still think we can get great things done um, in the next two years the, until the 2020 election uh, is upon us. And so I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Stacey. All right. Talk to you again soon. It's Mark Lauder, former special assistant to the president and press secretary to Vice President Pence. And uh, we, he's, he's right. The American people are smart enough to navigate their way around um, what are, are the traps and pitfalls set by a, an ever-increasingly liberal-leaning and really openly, unabashedly uh, anti-American Silicon Valley establishment. But that's, uh, let's, let's even go further than that. That doesn't even begin to make a dent in things as much as our prayers do. We have an opportunity to rely on God and let him show himself strong in our political processes, in our personal lives, and to be encouraged by him. Um, I'm thinking of earlier this week at Bible study. Um, I'd missed last week's Bible study because I wasn't feeling well that morning. And I should have just pushed through and gone, but I kind of gave in to the, you know, you're overtired, you need rest. So I stayed home. Well, this week when I went, it was, it was Tuesday, I, I go to Bible study and I, I got in the room and I immediately, I don't know what happened, but it felt like a ton of bricks just fell off my shoulders. And, and I instantly knew in that moment that even though I wasn't feeling that great last week, it was nothing contagious. I didn't have a fever or you know a cough. I should have gone because the stress relief would have made me feel better. And once you get in, you get plugged into a small group or a Bible study or something like that, it can be such a relief valve for the stresses and strains of everyday living. And so I encourage you, I'm, I'm not saying this, there's never any judgment. When I encourage people to get in the pew on Sunday or uh, Saturday, if you have Saturday services, when I encourage people to join a Bible study, it's never from a place of judgment or condemnation. It's like, this is something that's really been helping me and encouraging me and lifting me up. And I know it's something that could be the same for you. It could be a similar experience for you. So that's when I, when I say that it's encouragement to give it a try and see if you can find something that, that meets your schedule and suits your, your kind of aspirations for a Bible study. Because some, some people really like um, a Bible study that's kind of like church where everyone's there. Some people prefer to be in all women's Bible study or all men's, um, you know, if you're, if you're a guy. And it, it really is according to the person. That's why they have so many different types. Some people prefer to study books written by, um, you know, Christian authors. Some people prefer specific Christian authors. And some people really love studies that are the actual book of the Bible, like, you know, Joshua or Samuel, first Samuel, second Samuel, something like that. And so it's up to you which road you take. But if you are hesitant or you're maybe thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to do it, do it. Give it a try. Give it a try. I remember uh, the first Bible study I did as an adult where I had kind of been like on two separate occasions, someone had said to me, oh, oh, you're not in Bible study. And it was really judgmental. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, so 
you're just judging me in my time, you know? And then I thought to myself, well, why aren't I in a Bible study? Is it because I haven't chosen one at church? And then, of course, you know, I reared back up at myself and said, well, no one's asked you to be in Bible study. And you know how the Holy Spirit is. He was like, oh, so you need to be asked. And so someone asked me to join a Bible study. She was like, oh, you're going to love this. So I went and I honestly thought to myself, this subject matter is an area in which God has really blessed us. And I don't need this Bible study. I need one on this topic. And I had one in mind. But it turns out I really did need to learn more about what the Bible said about that subject matter. And God used that Bible study to really open my eyes and kind of set me on a journey to improve that area of my life and to come into full obedience in that area, which I have not yet achieved, but I'm so much closer than I was before I was doing Bible study. And so since then, it's become kind of like, you know, almost it's almost like a hobby that I actively pursue which is, I I have a few hobbies, things that I really love to do when I have free time, but Bible study is one of the ones that I call it a hobby, but it's really, I feel like it's a duty and an obligation to do it and to participate in it because I never fail to be sitting there going over my Bible study homework and I have the answer that I wrote and then someone will share what they wrote and it's a completely different perspective. And that's where I feel like the Lord really says, oh, you never thought about that, did you? Look, look, and, and you, your eyes are open to a whole nother avenue. Or someone will say, you know where else in the Bible that you can find that? And they'll bring another scripture reference into it, which I didn't find when I was studying it. So it's a great opportunity. And I encourage you to um, plug into a Bible study. If you feel like there's not one that, see, that is interesting to you or you don't see anything available, just say a quick little prayer. Ask the Lord to send someone your way and you will be, it, it's immediate. I, I literally said, well, no one's asked me. And within a week, two people asked me to join their Bible study. The one I chose to go into was perfect for uh, what, what I was trying to do. I didn't think it was, but it, it turned out to be perfect. So I definitely want to encourage you to do that. When we get back, we will take calls. Of course, we're always willing to take calls here on the show. 866 963 2037-866-963-2037. We're going to talk about the NAFTA trade win that no one is talking about. And um, also, I want to remind you to go to the website and get your Christmas wristbands. The site you can go to is afastore.net, afastore.net. We'd be so excited to have you wearing the Christmas wristbands. Like I'm wearing the headbands, only these go on your wrist, and they're about keeping Christ in Christmas. Come on, let's get this thing going. All right, we'll be right back with more after this. What does it take to live an uncommon life? Here's former Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. John Stephen Akwari, a marathon runner from Tanzania, started the 1968 Olympic marathon race with hope and pride in his heart. He was a mentor to thousands of kids in his homeland. A few miles into the race, he took a tragic fall and was trampled by several other runners. Hours later, John Stephen Akwari hobbled into the stadium for his last excruciating lap and crossed the finish line to thunderous applause. 
The next day, when asked by reporters why he kept going when he knew he had no chance of receiving a medal, he said, My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me to finish one. Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Our concern about 13 Reasons Why has not diminished. If you've signed the AFA petition to Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, then you've probably heard the story of Anna Bright, who killed herself after binge-watching the show. But did you know she wasn't the first, nor the last? Other young people have been influenced by this program and have taken their own lives. Netflix says they want to stimulate conversations about taboo topics like teen suicide, but they still refuse to have a conversation with the American Family Association about the dangers of their show. Please pray that God will change Mr. Hastings' mind so that he pulls 13 Reasons Why before another life is lost. Look for the AFA Action Alerts with information you can email and share on social media so that others can sign the petition too by visiting afa.net. Every vulnerable teen is another reason why. Fox on Faith with Lauren Green. One of the famous stories in the Old Testament is Jonah and the whale. For modern folks, the account seems improbable. But according to Dr. Timothy Keller, we can understand universal truths through Jonah's ordeal in his attempt to run from God. He says he was so angry at God over his mercy to this group of people. He, at the very end, he says, this is the reason I fled. I knew you were a merciful God, and I hate that about you. Keller is the founder and retired senior minister of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. His latest book called The Prodigal Prophet explains how we can learn about racism, prejudice, politics, and power from this reluctant hero. God called Jonah to preach repentance to the Assyrians in Nineveh, the equivalent of what we would call a terrorist state. But Jonah fled from the task, not wanting his enemies to reap the benefit of God's mercy. It's pretty relevant to us because especially today, there's a tendency for us to write entire groups off, those countries, those races, mm -hmm. or even that political party. To hear more, go to our Lighthouse Faith podcast on foxnews.com. For Fox on Faith, Lauren Green, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. President Trump had been eyeing this global summit as an opportunity to showcase his deal-making skills, a signing ceremony this morning, that new trade deal that replaces NAFTA, the president there alongside his counterparts from Mexico and, uh, Mexico and Canada. Yeah, we just had, of course, the signature uh, between the Canadians, the Americans, and the Mexicans of this new NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That is a win for President Trump. It is. Um, it is a win that NAFTA is going to be dismantled and it will be replaced by uh, the Mexico and Canada agreement, trade agreement. And we need to give credit where credit is due. And part of the negotiations for that um, would have been impossible with a Hillary Clinton president because she wouldn't have renegotiated NAFTA. She would have continued to allow American consumers to support other nations' workers over our own. And so the credit goes to President Trump for actually taking this on. Um, so a, a further development, remember we were just talking here on the program about Elizabeth Warren and a lot of people in her uh, campaign, or I shouldn't say campaign, these are, the, these are her staffers and supporters and advisors who are really upset about what's going on with uh, 
this it was an unforced error. She was not required to produce a DNA test. I don't care what President Trump said. And and the fact that he was able to goad her into doing this doesn't so what what they're doing is they're assessing, just like I said, they're looking at, okay, she made this unforced error just because someone said, I dare you to do this. You know, if you do, I'll give you this many millions of dollars or what have you. Whatever bluster the president put forward. And she fell for it. And now the Boston Globe is advising Elizabeth Warren to bow out of the 2020 field. This is pretty huge. So they used former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick's Thursday announcement that he would not make a run for president as an opportunity to advise Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat, Massachusetts, not to uh, to run, to make the same decision. It's the editor... It's the paper's editorial board. They said running for president is hard. Deciding not to run, that can be even harder. The Globe's board argued in 2015 the Democrats need Elizabeth Warren's voice in the 2016 presidential race. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that she shouldn't run, but it does lay out the case for why it would be an ill-advised effort on her part. Warren missed her moment in 2016, and there's reason to be skeptical of her prospective candidacy in 2020. While Warren won re-election, her margin for victory in November suggests there's a ceiling on her popularity. Wow, they're really analyzing her, her prospects here. <laughs> Republican Governor Charlie Baker garnered more votes than her in a state that is supposed to be a Democratic haven. Meanwhile, a September poll indicated that Massachusetts voters were more enthusiastic about Patrick making a White House bid than Warren. The paper called the Massachusetts poll results warning signs from the voters who know her best. It also argued that Warren is the wrong type of candidate to take on Republican President Donald Trump in 2020. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's not just about her winning the nomination. It's about her taking on the incumbent. While Warren is an effective and impactful senator with an important voice nationally, she has become a divisive figure. A unifying voice is what the country needs now after the polarizing politics of Donald Trump. I think they probably favor Beto O'Rourke. And he's all flash and no potatoes. Like there's, there's, there's no real substantial, uh, you know, there's nothing to feast on there with, with, with Beto O'Rourke. He's a lot like Barack Obama, but he doesn't have the, uh, he doesn't have the chops behind him. He's too much of like a skater dude to, to go the distance, if you will. So the advisors say Ms. Warren will have to confront the issue again if she announces a presidential campaign, which is in, expected in the coming weeks. And they expect her, they, they're advising her to make a, a plan to repair her relations with the Native tribes and racial minorities that the plan would have to include a strong statement of apology. So this is not a good day for her, not, not a good day for her presidential aspirations and really her Senate campaign um, could, because obviously she's always in campaign mode, all of them are. Because they have to be reelected the next time. Let's go to the phones. We have Renee in Texas. Thank you for calling the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Um, I would like to refer to the discussion you had earlier about what the Republicans were doing to improve things. The point I wanted to make is that if the Republicans don't fight this idea of coming up with votes at the last minute, you know, uh, and they allow them to steal the election. It doesn't matter how how good the uh, campaign is. It's true. And, and so we saw what it looks like bo on both sides, didn't we, Renee? 
uh, in mm-hmm. in Arizona, they just rolled over and cinema is going to go to the Senate. In Florida, they were like, not today. We're going to fight this. We're going to count every vote over and over and over again. And they were able exactly. to beat them back. It, the example well, is follow Rick Scott. Fight them mm-hmm. tooth and nail. Absolutely. They got. To me, if they do not have the votes uh, in custody, kind of like evidence at a trial, mm-hmm. if you don't have it in a chain of custody, it should not be counted. Not only that, but what is this thing with finding 70,000 votes? This is not a tiny amount of votes. After. Exactly. So you literally, exactly. after the thing's over, then 70,000 votes show up? That, that's bigger than, like if you think about, that's bigger than our three largest suburbs in the city of St. Louis are not 70,000 mm-hmm. people. I mean, that's, that's an I mean, outrageous this is, number. This is outright stealing. It is. And they're not even bothering to be, you know, kind of hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just like, we're stealing this. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. And the, the Republicans have been letting them get away with it. I just want to know who's who's like. At what point do you, do the Republicans say, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy? This is this is the Republican Party under Donald Trump. When do they mm-hmm. bring out their real steely, you know, the steel in their spine and their their we're we're all about business? When do they get a taste of that? I just can't believe they're letting it happen. The the, the other thing that I do not understand is is that the people perpetrating this kind of thing don't even realize. It's like if you do this, do you not understand that it could be used against you? I want to see people go to jail. You know what, Renee? That's that's yeah, my thing. I want to see people I, yeah, who are stealing and go to jail. That, but, I mean, when you do underhanded things to people, then then you're setting it up to have things done to you. We always want to keep things above board and honest, always, no matter what side we're on, so that we know that what we have is is the right thing that happens. I agree. The, the honesty has to be there. It does. And it, it also means that the next time we don't have to worry about dishonesty being done to us. But we also have to be willing to stand up and fight for what's right. And um, it's just weird to see that not happening in some of these elections where you, it's clear they're robbing the American voter blind. And, and the Republicans are kind of just standing back saying, well, what can we do? Why would they sit on their hands like this? I don't understand it. And it doesn't make me want to repo- uh, vote for them. I know. Does, doesn't it kind of dampen your enthusiasm when you see it? Because you're like, well, so we get out the vote. We knock the doors. We, we donate. We do everything we're supposed to do. And then mm-hmm. the Democrats steal the election and the Republicans stand by and don't do anything. Um, yes. You know, but in, in the case of cinema down in Arizona, I've seen many, many people say that the woman who would have won if she lost wasn't the one we wanted because she was like a, a like a replacement for John McCain and we want a true conservative there. So it's probably better to have a liberal socialist that people will get tired of so we can win with a, a good person next time. I guess that's an okay sentiment. But I, I would still. just rather have somebody who stands up for American values. <laughs> Me too. Period. Me too. No, you're right. You're right, Renee. Thank you for calling the show today. It's good to talk to you. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm with her. I mean, you know what I really annoys me is that every time it's allowed to happen, then that means the next time they're like, well, you see what happened this time. It worked. We were able to pull it off. So, you know, keeping 70,000 votes in a box someplace, that's a thing. We can make that happen. 
Um, I don't know. I, we know that the Lord repays like, so you don't, you don't get away with anything. We know that, but it's very frustrating and it is disheartening. It makes you feel like, you know, what, what's the point if Democrats are just going to steal elections that they don't win because they want their candidate there. And also all of the, the, what's being called diversity on the left-hand side of the aisle, which is really, it's not diversity at all. It's, it's perversion electing people who like cinema is, an openly bisexual person, you know, really that that's a qualification for office on the left. Your actual choice of who you are intimate with becomes a voter block or an issue that people would say, Oh, that we're, we're definitely happy that she's there because of who she, you know, has relations with that. That's where we are in this country, at least on one side of the political aisle. That's where we are in this country. All right. So, we were talking about that, and we also have um, this piece by a friend of mine. It's over at Medium.com, Cameron Gray, and he's been talking about this 1944 Christmas classic, Baby, It's Cold Outside, and it, the, the whole furor that began over the one radio station saying, well, we can't play this because it's uh, a consent issue in the song. So this radio station in California, uh, well, there were two stations that started off the Fuhrer. Um, WDOK-FM host Glenn Anderson first banned it, and then another station in San Francisco followed suit, and then stations in Canada, and, um, you know, the station in Denver, which was one of the first ones to ban it, has reversed course and said, forget it, we're, we're not going to stop this. But there's a lot of discussion and, and things that um, have been said in the wake of this baby, it's cold outside, the kind of the scandal around it. And my thing is that similar to what I said to Kimberly Classic, but Cameron actually went a step further. And I can't read the lyrics here on the air on this good Christian radio network, but I can give you, um, so you got Going Bad by Meek Mill, a horrible song with just the worst kind of stuff. Um, Sicko Mode by Travis Scott, um, who calls women the worst kinds of names. Mo, Mo Bamba by Sheck Wes. Um, Tick Tock by Six Nine. Kika by Six Nine. And that's the top 10. These are the top 10 songs he found that were explicit lyrics that demean women and insult them and are the worst. And they're on today's Spotify chart. There are vivid descriptions of the mistreatment of women and aggression towards them sexually. But WDOK-FM doesn't have a problem playing those songs. And neither do any of, the, any of these stations. I mean, just filth, pure garbage. And it gets played on Spotify all day, every day. But I bet you they have their own little symbol for the Me Too movement, just like Twitter does. So if a person is really concerned with mistreatment of women in music, oh, there's a wealth of information out there for you to pull from. And we have to be prayer prayerfully considering what role we play in this if we're allowing our children to listen to this music if we are listening to this music 
Um, and, and I've talked many times here on the air about how I like to listen to many different kinds of music, but nothing that's sexually explicit, nothing with profanity in it. I'm not going to, you got to, you got to have standards, peeps. You got to have standards. And we have to pray that the Lord would ri- raise up a desire in especially our young people, but in all people to not have their minds sullied through the listening. Uh, the, it's piped into your brain, literally. It's going straight into your brain, this music that glorifies the objectification of women and the mistreatment of women and really sets such a low bar for behavior, not just towards women, but between people in general. Because I, I, it's no doubt in my mind that the people who sing these kinds of songs, they don't have any respect for themselves. That's why they sing these songs. They lack respect for themselves and they don't respect women. They would say, oh, it's just music. I respect women. I respect my mom. I respect, you know, I respect women, you know. No, you don't. You don't respect yourself. How can you respect other people when you don't respect yourself? If you say the kinds of lyrics that are, they, they write this music, they write the lyrics, they set it to music, they promote it, they sing it over and over again at concerts. People clap and listen and pay big bucks to go to the concerts and listen to it. And this is culturally degrading, it's personally degrading, and it's destructive. It, it's the kind of music that instead of uplifting and building up the synapses and, and uh, it's destroying them. You know how there was a big movement back, this is, I don't know, 20 years ago, um, get kids to listen to classical music from the time they're born when their babies you know, play classical music all the time and it was supposed to stimulate their brain and help them to do math and science, etc. Well, now we need a movement just to keep the profanity out. Forget about playing something to help their brains. Let's just not destroy their brains by piping in garbage. That's where we are. All right, that's the show for today. God bless you from the heartland. Back with more soon. Bye-bye.